All right, we are in episode 22 of this sermon series that we're in called The Plan. Today's episode is called The Curse, and this is perhaps arguably the most important event to happen in the Old Testament. It is certainly the event that is talked about the most in the Old Testament. But before we get to this very important turning point in the story of the Bible, we need to remind ourselves of what we've been doing. We've been working to tell the story of the entire Bible from beginning to end as one story with one plot. And the plot that we've identified as unifying this whole story is that it's the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. That's how God made things in the beginning. He made the world and put people in it to rule the world on his behalf. And he came down to live with them, and then they messed it up. And we keep messing up this arrangement that God has made. And the Bible is the story of God putting it right again. And that's important to us because we are part of that story. And this plan, then, is God's plan for our lives, what our lives are supposed to look like, and the cause that we are working toward as Christians. Now, the way God has chosen to restore his plan has been to work through one particular people called Israel and use them as kind of a display model of his plan. So he gave these people a particular place, the kingdom of Israel. He gave them his presence in the temple, and he gave them the law of Moses to, to outline their purpose of how they can show who God is to the communities around them. And unfortunately, the Israelites have not been any better at living out that plan than the rest of humanity has been at living, out, living it out from the beginning. And at this point in the story, the kingdom, because the kings were not good at obeying God, the kingdom split, and the top ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, continued to rebel against God more and more until God finally destroyed the kingdom. The Assyrians came in and wiped it out and deported most of the people, and that kingdom is gone. Last week, we talked about the kingdom of Judah, which is two tribes in, at the southern end, and that's where Jerusalem is, and how they b- became a vassal of Assyria. And Hezekiah was a very godly king, but when he rebelled, Assyria came in and destroyed all of Judah except for Jerusalem. And God saved Jerusalem because Hezekiah was obedient in serving God, but that's all he saved. All that's left is Jerusalem. And so as we pick up this story, we're picking it up in a Judah that has been devastated and and has been um, left with very little going for it. All they really have is Jerusalem and a a wasted countryside. And so as we go into the story today, we actually have a lot to cover for some very interesting reasons. But what I want you to keep in mind, the way we keep our bearings in these stories, is we watch for people. Who is the story about? Place is where is their home? presence, we keep track of how they can meet with God, and purpose. What did God tell them to do? So, here's our transition passage. It's very short this week. Hezekiah rested with his ancestors, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. If you've been through this series with us, then you'll already know enough to fill in the, uh, the rest of this. Um, none of the that I'm about to say will surprise you. We can fill in the rest of the details with what we already know. So, first of all, who is the story about? We're going to have to talk about a lot of kings, which is why I put in several lines there for you. But first off, we're talking about Manasseh and the Judahites. The Judahites are all that's left of God's people, and Manasseh is their king, so he is responsible for leading them. Where is their home? The vassal kingdom of Judah. It's a vassal kingdom. Remember, we talked about this last week. That means that they are a little, little country on the edge of a big empire, and they're supposed to do what that empire tells them to do. 
Now, throughout this story, that's going to shift. It's going to start out being Assyria is the bully in town, and then it's going to be Egypt for a little while, but ultimately it's going to end up being Babylon. But the point is, Judah is expected to do whatever the biggest country around tells them to do. That's their status. Now, how at this point in the story, how can they meet with God? Well, this is the one thing that Judah has going for them, is that God's presence, the creator of the universe, his presence rests in the temple in Jerusalem. That's the best thing about being uh, part of the kingdom of Judah. Even though you're part of this little country that doesn't have much influence, the God who created everything lives in Jerusalem with you. Finally, what did God tell them to do? Well, as long as we've been talking about the kings, which has been a while now, we've been emphasizing the fact that the king's job is to obey God. The king has been invested with special authority over God's people, and that is a special responsibility then to lead them in obeying God and fulfilling his plan, in in fulfilling their purpose. So they're the ones who are responsible for making sure that Judah lives out the law of Moses and actually does behave in ways that reflect God into the cultures around them. Now, for Manasseh, this is actually probably, he's got it easier than a lot of others because all he has to do is follow Hezekiah's example. And it's very likely that Hezekiah and Manasseh were actually, they overlapped because it was common for a king to crown his son while he was still king so he could do on-the-job training. So Manasseh learned from the most righteous king that Judah had had to this point. All he had to do was keep doing what Manasseh had done. Manasseh, or sorry, keep doing what Hezekiah had done. Hezekiah had torn down the high places. He destroyed the idols. Manasseh just had to keep up those policies, right? Except that as we go into the story, Manasseh has a choice to make, as every child of a believer has to make, is does he want to be the kind of king that his father was? Because here's the thing. We say, yeah, Hezekiah was great. He was righteous. He did all the right things. You should be Hezekiah. But Manasseh looks around and says, what did Hezekiah get for his effort? He got almost completely destroyed. So if following God means that I might be almost completely destroyed, and my big victory is the fact that, we, that the Assyrians didn't destroy the uh, capital, maybe that's not the kind of victory that I want. And so Manasseh has to decide, do I want to follow God's path, which might lead me in places that I don't want to go, or do I want to strike out on my own path? Well, let's see what Manasseh chooses. Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Sometimes you read the Bible and, and they can seem almost like comic book characters. Like, wow, how did Hezekiah come, or Manasseh come out just so completely one-dimensionally evil? But you can actually tell by the common threads of what he did, what his motivation was. The common trend in all the choices that he made was they had to do with knowing the future and controlling the future. He consulted uh, spiritists and mediums. He, did, he consulted the stars. Whenever they talk about the starry hosts, the stars are supposed to tell the future. So he did whatever he could to know the future, and then he did whatever he could to control the future. All those sacrifices, building the altars, you can buy off 
pagan gods. And so he's doing these sacrifices to try and make things go the way he wants. And the bigger sacrifice you make, the more powerful the, the offering is. And so sacrificing his child was a way of offering the most potent sacrifice he could so he could get the best results that he possibly could. So what's happening is that Manasseh rejected God's plan and he sought power through other gods. He doesn't want to end up like Hezekiah with just this little tiny devastated country. He wants to be powerful and he's going to do whatever it takes to get that regardless of whether it's part of God's plan or not. So Manasseh has chosen to build his kingdom this way. It's the same thing that Ahab did, and it's similar to the choice that Solomon made. The difference between him and Ahab is that when Manasseh starts doing this, he's doing this to the temple of God, where God actually lives. Ahab couldn't corrupt the temple because it wasn't part of his kingdom, but Manasseh is corrupting the temple in the place of God's presence. So how does God respond? His response is, is strong, we might say. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies." They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. So at this point, God decides, that's it, that's enough, I'm destroying them. Jerusalem is done. And if we've been trained to think of the Old Testament God as angry, then this might play into that, this sense that God is just so furious that he's just, he just can't control it anymore, he won't control it anymore, he just has to let loose and just destroy people. Because this is what happens when you step far enough out of line, God just loses it, right? Except that that's not what's going on. God is not out of control angry at this point. In fact, God is being very methodical. God is following the contract that he signed with Israel back in Deuteronomy. See, we've been referencing Deuteronomy a lot. Pretty much every week we go back to what God said in Deuteronomy because that lays the expectations for Israel. And the last section of the covenant in, Israel, in Deuteronomy is three chapters about blessings and curses. And the idea is their job is to, to show the world who God is. And they show the world who God is by their relationship with God and how God responds to what they do. So when they obey God, God blesses them. And that shows that God is endorsing their behavior. Yes, these people are doing it right. Be like them. But what happens when Israel disobeys and they do things wrong? If God continues to bless them, then he's telling the world, yes, be like them, when they should not be like Israel. So instead, there are curses in the covenant. So that if they break the covenant, God brings those curses to say, hey, they're doing it wrong. Do not be like them. Because either way, they're going to show the world what God wants from people, either as a positive example or a negative example. And so what God is describing here is exactly what the Israelites were told would happen way back during the time of Moses. So, uh, Moses said, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God has given you. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. Why is he going to do this? 
Because all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to the land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought onto it all the curses written in this book. So what's happening as we read the story of Manasseh is that God, he's basically invoking the breach of contract clause that's in the covenant. When Israel breaks the covenant, this is what must be done. So God declared the covenant broken, and he invoked the covenant curse. But here's the interesting thing, and this is what's made this sermon a bit of a challenge to put together, is that this curse doesn't come during the reign of Manasseh. Manasseh, in fact, has the longest reign of any king in the history of Israel, and he dies in peace. And his son reigns over him. And it's actually going to be a while before this judgment happens. In fact, it's going to be so long that I have to use, show you a chart to keep track of the royal line, because it's going to get weird. Um, it's going to get complicated here. So, here's Hezekiah and Manasseh. Manasseh dies, and his son Asa becomes king, and he gets assassinated after two years. And so Asa's son becomes king at eight years old, and his name is Josiah. Now, here's the interesting thing. God has already decreed that Judah is going to be destroyed, and yet Josiah turns out to be an incredibly righteous king because he decides that he's going to worship Yahweh, And so the first thing he does is he decides to renovate the temple that has been left in complete disrepair. And while they're renovating the temple, they find a copy, probably, of the book of Deuteronomy. It's a book of the law, which probably means they found Deuteronomy. And they read it to the king, and the king freaks out because he had no idea what the law said. And he realized, wait a minute, that's what we were supposed to be doing all along? We are in major trouble. Because they had completely forgotten what was even in the law. And so he reads this and he realizes we are in serious trouble of breaking the covenant. We need help. And so he sends messengers to a prophetess and asks her, what do we do to prevent this from happening? Um, And so, sorry, I I missed this part. Okay, so now we're on King Josiah. So he sends the messengers, and here's how she responds. She said to them, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. It's already decided. It's going to happen. It's too late. However, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So Josiah, because he, he wished they could go back and, and undo this, this uh, disobedience, he gets a pass for his reign, that it's not going to happen during his reign. So, but the question, the interesting question to ask here is, what would you do if you were Josiah? Okay? Because you know Judah's fate is sealed, and you know you can't really stop it, and you know you get to reign in peace. Are you, what are you going to do? I've, it makes sense to me to be tempted to just kind of keep your head down and just try and get through your reign and as easily as possible. Don't take on anything you know, too, too ambitious because it's not really going to make much of a difference. And yet, Josiah makes a very different decision. 
The king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and with all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Now Josiah knows that this is not going to change their fate. He has been told flat out. And yet, he is still so intent on obeying God that he still calls the people back to the covenant. He still goes through this major reformation, this major revival, uh, reform, in order to get the nation back on track, even though he knows that he can't stop what's coming, because it just matters to him that he and his people follow God. So even though he knew that Judah's fate was sealed, Josiah did everything he could to serve God's plan. Because he cared about serving God, even if he couldn't change the results. But Josiah's reign is too little too late. He, so the Assyrian Empire begins to crumble, so the, the Egyptians come up to kind of give him the coup de grace, and Josiah decides to stop, try and stop them, and it doesn't go well. He dies in battle against the Egyptians, right? The Egyptians come up after defeating um, Josiah, and by the time they get to Jerusalem, Josiah's oldest son, Jehoahaz, has been made king. But usually what happens when you conquer a city is you... Don't write that name down. You don't need that name. <laughs> Jehoahaz is king when the Egyptians get there, but usually when you take a city, what you'll do is you'll depose the king and put someone else on the throne because then they owe you the fact that they're king. So they depose Jehoahaz, and they put his brother Jehoiachin... Uh, Jehoiakim, sorry, Jehoiakim on the throne. So now we're looking at Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is responsible for leading God's people. But here's the thing. Disobedience was so ingrained into their society that when Josiah dies and his sons take over, they go right back to what they were doing before. Israel is back in rebellion against God, and these kings are, his, his own sons are disobedient to God. And so during Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. So now the big guy on the block is Babylon. They defeat uh, Egypt, and Egypt's knocked out of the game. So he, he's a vassal of Babylon for three years, but then he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah. In accordance with the word of the Lord, he proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. So Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon, but in the middle of the rebellion, he dies. So his son, Jehoiachin, becomes king. But don't write that name down. Because what do, you, what, what do you think happens when the king of Babylon gets to the city of Jerusalem where Jehoiachin is king? He, deports, he deposes him and takes him to exile in Babylon, and he makes his uncle king, and he renames him Zedekiah. So now the third son of Josiah is king, uh, Zedekiah. And he is the last king of Israel, of Judah. I do all that because later on you're going to need to know who Jehoiachin is. So, how does Zedekiah do? What's his thought? What has he learned from his predecessors? Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, in the tenth, year of the tenth, tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works around, all around it. The city was kept under siege from the 11th year of King Zedekiah. 
what? Like, why did he do this? Why is Zedekiah not learning from past experience? This is the fourth time since Hezekiah that, that, Jeru- that Judah has rebelled against a, uh, their, their overlords, and it's never worked. Why do they keep doing this? Why didn't they learn from Hezekiah? I mean, Hezekiah was righteous, and it didn't even work for him. Well, it turns out they did learn from Hezekiah. They just learned the wrong lesson. What they learned from Hezekiah was that no matter what, God will never let his temple get destroyed. Jerusalem will never fall because God lives there. We can tell that this is what they were thinking because it's, uh, Jeremiah is the prophet that God called to confront these kings that we've been looking at. And he, he gives a famous sermon in the temple, uh, on the temple grounds where he says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now, you've probably heard another famous prophet, um, perhaps more than a prophet, stand in the temple grounds and say, talk about a den of robbers. He's referring to this. So what den of robbers means is that they would go out and rebel and sin and do all these horrible things, but then they would come and hide in the temple because God will never let the temple get destroyed, and that way they can get away with anything. They can take any risk, they can do any dumb thing they want, and God will never let Jerusalem fall. Kind of like the parents who will never let their child get punished and will always get their kid out of anything. Like, like that's what they think about God. And so Josiah's sons rebelled against Babylon because they assumed God would always protect them. But this time they're wrong, as, as the book of Kings has already prepared us for. This pattern is important because this pattern is going to come back, of this rebelling against the empires because you think God will, let you, will just protect you and let you do whatever you want. That's going to come back. But what happens this time is that on the ninth, by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through. The Babylonians killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. The Babylonian commander set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the, temple, all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. The commander carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. So instead of of protecting them, God allowed Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, demolish the temple, and deport the people. And this is really important for us to understand the significance of this event because uh, if we keep the plan in mind, what just happened? The entire plan just got revoked. God's presence is gone. In fact, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, who's in Babylon at this point, has a vision of God withdrawing his presence from the temple before it gets destroyed. God's presence is gone. The people have been deported from their place and... You can't actually enforce the law of Moses and fulfill the purpose of Israel if you don't have a nation where you can enforce those laws. You have to have a kingdom in order to be able to enforce all the laws of Moses. At the very least, you have to have the the Ark of the Covenant. Remember we talked about the importance of the Ark of the Covenant for the presence of God? Yeah, the Ark's gone. We'll never see it again. 
So every single part of the plan has been taken away. It has been completely revoked because the covenant is broken. That's it. Because Israel has, has rebelled continually against God. So everything is over for Israel. Except for this weird little, peg, weird little story at the end of Kings. Here's how the book of Kings ends. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, that's the nephew, like the, the youngest one, in the, year of Arwell, in the year Arwell Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. The weird little detail to add at the end. Here's what it means. What we watched as the city was destroyed is the door on Israel's place in God's plan being completely slammed shut. That's it. God's done. And then it creaks open just a little bit. Because the king of, in Babylon, like the king of Israel just disappeared. The king of the northern kingdom, when he was taken to Assyria, he just disappeared. He's gone. But the king of Judah is shown some honor, some respect, some protection. What that shows us is just this little glimmer of hope for what, if you know the story of the Bible or the fact that we're not done with the series today, you know that there is hope coming. So even though the covenant was broken, God continued to watch over his people. In fact, in the covenant, in, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, it says that after the blessings and the curses... When you return to me, I will restore you. And that is the story that we're going to be following. That restoration is going to lead us through the New Testament. But this is as far as we're going with the story today. So what are we going to learn from this? This was, this was some heavy stuff, but the, the struggle that I had at first with telling this, with, with the morals for this story was they're so similar to the ones we've been looking at because the, the Judites just keep doing the same thing. Or they keep getting pulled back into the same sins, the same mistakes, which is the same for the rest of us, right? We, we don't get actually that creative in our sinning. We just keep getting pulled back into the ones that we always have a weakness for. And it's the same thing here. So a lot of the things that I was originally going to say are things we've said that I said last week. But what, the challenge for this sermon was how much time it covered. Because Manasseh is the one who, who breaks the covenant. It's under his reign that the covenant's broken. And it takes so long for it to actually happen. And that was a challenge, and that got me thinking. And I think a big thing that we can learn from this story is actually about the role that culture plays in our relationship with God. The thing about culture is, culture is like traffic. Everybody participates in it and contributes to it, but nobody really controls it. The human behaviors add up to, uh, add up, I make a decision, you make a decision, we each make our decisions, and the sum total of that creates a culture. And a culture, like traffic, is a force that is powerful because culture, you, like we contribute to culture, but then culture influences us. And it builds up momentum that it's hard to work against. And so it's really, really hard to control. It's easy to contribute to culture, but it's really hard to control it. So, for instance, Manasseh had the longest and most evil reign in Judah's history. He built up a lot of momentum because he trained people for 55 years to disobey God and to do all these other evil things. 
And then Josiah comes in, and he works this reform for, he's king for 18 years. And as soon as he dies, the people go back into those deep-seated habits. Because there was so much momentum built up in their culture from those years and years of disobedience. And from those decades of making choices to disobey God and to live out a different purpose, Josiah couldn't hold it back. And so what happened to Jerusalem in, um, when, when Jerusalem got destroyed is very much because of that momentum that was created under the reign of Manasseh. That's one of the scary things about culture is that the consequences of culture are often delayed by decades. And so the, the, the other thing that this story teaches us about culture is that God holds his people responsible for the kind of culture they create. It matters what culture we create and, and what we as Christians contribute to our culture. And God will hold us responsible for that. Because I think, personally, what I see is that a lot of the people attacking the church today are the people the church was attacking 10 and 20 years ago. And the people that are mistreating Christians today are often the people that were mistreated by Christians 10 and 20 and 30 years ago. And the interesting thing about God's judgment is it usually looks like the natural consequences of what you did. Because So God, the Bible says God sent the Babylonians, right? But he didn't do it supernaturally because you can also easily explain why the Babylonians came. It's because the Jews kept rebelling against Babylon. So it's not a surprise that the Babylonians are there. He didn't like teleport them there or something like that. It makes sense. It's the consequences of the sin and God just didn't hold it back. And so what we see is that we are held responsible for the, con for the culture that we create and for what we add into culture. And so it's important for us as believers to make sure that our contribution to the culture around us, whether it is our church culture, the Christian culture, or American culture, that our contribution is godly. It's not enough to say, well, I was just going with the flow. Because God judges the, the direction of the flow. But, as I observed and as we saw with Josiah, no one actually controls culture. The king of Judah could not, for, worked for 18 years to change the direction of Judah, and he couldn't. What can I do? Right? As one person with so little influence. But I think it's important for us to learn from Josiah's example. First of all, that Josiah knew for a fact that he wouldn't change the course of Judah, and he did it anyway. Because that's his purpose. His job as king is to, rule, is to lead Israel, or lead Judah, to obey God. So first of all, it's his purpose. But second of all, it turns out that what Josiah did was not for nothing. On the one hand, Josiah's reforms inspired a generation of prophets, uh, two of whom turned out to be major prophets in terms of the books they wrote, Josiah and Ezekiel. Or, sorry, <laughs> Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel um, were, were inspired by the reforms of Josiah. And also, it's almost certain that major portions of the Bible were preserved simply because of Josiah's reign and because he preserved them. The book of Deuteronomy. I mean, the, the fact that they still had the records of Israel and the records of the covenant when they went into exile was probably because Josiah reformed them just before they were destroyed. Why else would a rebellious people have the contract they broke? 
So what that story teaches us is that even when we can't change culture, God can still use our obedience to accomplish his plan. Because I'll tell you, you cannot change the culture. I cannot change the culture. I might be able to change the culture in my family, in my home, if I work really hard. Um, you know, a family might be able to change the culture in a neighborhood, really influence but I'm not going to be able to change a culture on any real size, right? Now, different people have different levels of responsibility, but ultimately, anytime we obey God and we serve him, that matters. And God can use that to do amazing things. Josiah never knew the effect that his obedience was going to have. But he was obedient anyway. And as we look at what we're called to do in a world where we can't control the culture and we're probably not very happy with where the culture is going, um, what we do still matters. And God can still use that to make a difference. Because ultimately, we find our hope and what we do finds its purpose in the same place that what Josiah did finds its purpose. Because Josiah is part of a link in a chain of a story that led up to a person, a prophet, who stepped out of the wilderness 500 years later and said, things are changing. God is doing something new. To quote him more precisely, he said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. What Jesus said when he said the kingdom of God has come near is he's saying that God is stepping into history and he is changing things. He is creating his own culture in this world and it is going to overcome all of the sin and the destruction that human beings create. Josiah contributed to the story that led up to Jesus beginning that, and we contribute to the story of how that kingdom spreads throughout the world. But God sent Jesus to overcome the tide of human rebellion and establish the true kingdom of God. Because here's the thing, the power of culture can be used for the good of the kingdom as well. And in a way, that's what the kingdom is. The kingdom is individual lives being changed and massing that change as the church, as the body of Christ to create transformation in their families, transformation in their neighborhoods, transformation in their counties and their states and their nations. And it has transformed the course of human history. And it continues to transform the course of human history because when God gets involved, when his spirit fills a culture, when his spirit fills a group, everything can be different. And that's what Jesus started. And that continues today, and we are a part of it now. So as we close, I want to ask you, what is God calling you to do today? Maybe you have not become a part of that culture, become a part of that kingdom. And today is the best day to give your life to Jesus, to be transformed, and to become part of the plan that God has for restoring all of humanity. Today is the best day to do that. And you can, you can come forward during the final song if you want to give your life to Jesus. You can talk to, to one of our staff members after this service. Or if you're online, contact the church office. Talk to a Christian that you trust. Um, just do it today. Maybe you've given your life to God, but you have found that you have gotten pulled back into culture. You've gotten pulled in the wrong directions. You've been going with the flow too often. Maybe today what you need to do is rededicate your life to following God, to being part of the culture of Jesus Christ, to going against that flow. Today is the best day for you to make that commitment. 
And I, I don't actually know this for a scientific fact, but it's just the analogy that pops in my head. I imagine it's easier for fish to swim against the stream in a school, right, in a group. Feels like it would be, right? I don't know if that analogy is working, but the point that I'm making is it's easier for us as believers to go against the way culture is pushing us to push toward the kingdom of God when we do it together. And so if you want to be a part of a group of people who are swimming against the current, who are working to follow Jesus Christ no matter which direction we're pushed, that's who we are as a church. And you can get involved by joining a small group or a service team. Those are ways to form community with a smaller group of friends. That's what a small group is for. Or to serve others through our service teams. Or you can place your membership with our church. And you can do that by signing up for a Connect class. That's what the Connect card is for. You can check anything you're interested on there, and and we'll set that up with you. But I ask you now to consider what decision is God calling you to make as he's calling you to pursue his culture, to pursue his kingdom, and to push against all these forces that are leading us in other directions. Let's stand and sing our final song.